You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever Al-Kuli Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, we'll hear from Jeff Lowe. Jeff was interviewed by a group of historians in 2009. Jeff was an accomplished mountaineer, developed climbing equipment, authored many books, and organized climbing events and festivals such as the Snowbird World Cup competitions and ice climbing in the Winter X Games. Hope you enjoy. John Morsencroft again. I'm sitting down with uh, Jeff Lowe one more time, and it is May 8th, and Jeff, we talked about starting off talking about uh, how you've kind of broken into international climbing at this time, around uh, the mid-1970s, so why don't we just start there? Well, in uh, 1974, tooth, 1974 was an uh, interesting year for two reasons. One is the, the year started off uh, January 1st uh-huh. with the Mike Weiss and I making the first ascent of um, Bridalville Falls in Colorado. That was uh, personally a landmark climb in waterfall ice climbing and it uh, was really a landmark climb in the, in the sport as well. So whereas Greg had introduced me to that kind of ice climbing a couple of years earlier on Malin's waterfall in uh, the Wasatch Range, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Bridalville Falls <coughs> was taking that... Uh, that kind of climbing to a higher level. So, um, why do you uh, describe that climb for me? Well, uh, Bridalville Falls about 400 feet high, uh, pretty much vertical, um, and it's uh, uh, usually forms up early in the season. Um, <laughs> with uh, 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 some pretty amazing formations, overhangs and kind of misty wings. And 
it looks like a bride's veil, kind of, therefore, the name. And uh, we climbed it, obviously, early, early in the season. It had been about uh, uh, average daytime temperatures for two weeks of about 20 below. So it was very brittle ice and um, very steep. Mike and I weren't sure if it, the whole thing wouldn't just to topple over mm -hmm. with us on it. We've since discovered that doesn't usually happen until um, until warm weather in the spring. Um, <coughs> weakens the ice, but it was uh, it was an eye opening. Uh, climb we essentially free climbed it uh, in in terms of ice climbing free climbing mm -hmm. and excuse me stinky you're gonna have to go somewhere <laughs> okay um cat will go where she wants to go mike did uh take a rest on a, a ice screw under the crux overhang mm -hmm. but apart from that we we free climbed it and so when when we got <coughs> when we got to the top we uh, uh, we knew we weren't ever gonna have to consider uh, aid climbing in uh, in regards to ice again uh, so that was an important realization. Mm -hmm. And it had major uh, implications for alpine climbing in the high mountains. Mm -hmm. So the year started off well with Bridalville. And then I got an invitation to Uh, take part in an exchange program. Well, yeah, it did turn into an exchange program uh, with a trip to uh, Russia, to, to uh, Tajikistan mm -hmm. in the area of Mount Lenin. And uh, this is a, kind of a offshoot of the Himalayas. Lenin itself is about uh, a little over 23,000 feet high. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to me to get, uh, I agreed to go because I, I would be able to um, experience higher altitude for the first time. Mm -hmm. And we would be supposedly climbing in small teams. I think there were a total of 18 Americans and a total of something like 180 uh, or more climbers from 10 different companies, mm -hmm. I mean countries, mm -hmm. uh, uh, operating out of one base camp that was being staffed and run by the Russians. Right. Uh, <clears throat> That trip was uh, interesting, not so much 
for the quality of climbing we did, mm -hmm. uh, but for the emphasis it gave me on uh, my commitment to small teams in the mountains. While we were there, there were some big storms and uh, there were several earthquakes which caused avalanches. And uh, in, in the end, 15, <laughs> 15 people died. And part of the reason that so many people died is uh, decisions were being made kind of in a type of groupthink Mm -hmm. uh, where the individual in large groups gives up some of their own responsibility to the group. Mm -hmm. And it's my opinion that in the mountains, everybody needs to maintain their own integrity of decision-making and not defer to the group if, if they don't actually agree. And uh, so we saw a lot of, I think, poor decisions made. Uh, uh, some of it was bad luck, too. As I said, there were earthquakes and mm -hmm. massive storms. Uh, there was a group of Russian women trying to uh, prove themselves on Peak Lenin uh, with very, very poor gear who got caught in a storm mm -hmm. near the uh, near the summit uh, I believe um, nine or ten died in overnight mm -hmm. we tried to get to them and rescue them but we were a day late dollar short right who, who put this on was it the, the Russian government the Russians the Russian mountaineering Federation Right. which was a government uh, body in. So was it a, a PR kind of thing? Was it a, yeah, it was a, a the Russians versus the U.S. Cold War kind of thing? It was, it was a result of Nixon opening up ping-pong mm -hmm. diplomacy with Russia. Nixon did a few good things, mm -hmm. uh, as well <laughs> as several major bad things. But uh, uh, he... He started uh, uh, opening up the, the um, channels of communication with Russia that I think eventually led to uh, um, <coughs> the decline of the old Soviet Union. Right. And uh, so, anyway, that's branching off into politics. Well, but just, just a little bit. I mean, do you think that... Uh a lot of this group think that you were talking about was, you know, informed by, uh, you know, nationalism and pride and not wanting to... Uh, well, definitely on the Soviet women's part. They were the first... The Soviets were very structured in in how... Who they would even allow to climb. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the Soviet women to be allowed to go on their own was a major source of pride to the the women and um, it was also a major blow to both the uh, uh, women's kind of cause in Russia as well as to the uh, Soviet 
federations um, image mm-hmm. when they had this great ca- catastrophe. And it was in the news, the New York Times covered this expedition. Uh, uh, they sent a, a reporter to cover Chris Wren, and he, uh, he reported extensively on this. So it was internationally a uh, kind of a black eye for the Russians, right. even though I don't think it should have been. I, You know... <clears throat> These kind of things happen regardless of ideology. People right. uh, climb for their own pride or whatever. And r- the Russian women just uh, got really unlucky. They had very poor gear, essentially little Boy Scout pup tents that mm-hmm. just blew apart in this storm near the summit of uh, Peak Lennon. Hmm. Um, what about your, what, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, did you, uh, I mean, were you caught up in this, 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 you know, this national pride kind of thing? I mean, did you feel like you were per, pers- representing America or person <laughs> Personally, I, I've always felt that the geologic uh, or geographic uh, accident of my birth in any, any <laughs> particular country was just that, you know. Right. I've always felt like a citizen of the world, um, and I've always felt that the world world will, will be a better place when uh, people uh, embrace the entire planet as their home uh, rather than... <clears throat> Uh, geographical locations independent from others because uh, the fact is we're completely interdependent. But that's a utopian, far off in the future (laughs) perspective. But, you know, ultimately, if we're going to survive, it'll come down to that Mm -hmm. in the long run. I'm not positive we'll get there. I'm not sure there's enough time in the future to <laughs> to get to that point. But, you know, if if things were to work right, it would be leading more towards a lessening of nationalism mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> an embracing of inter- interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, but there were other people uh, climbing on that uh, trip that felt differently. Uh, the guy that I did my best climb on the trip with, uh, John Roskelly, a climber from the Northwest who was in the 70s and, and uh, 80s, probably America's one of America's best Himalayan climbers mm-hmm. was very much a uh, uh, American patriot. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a patriot too, but in a, mm-hmm. in a different vein. <laughs> um, and so John and I, uh, though we didn't see eye to eye, um, uh, uh, politically made a great uh partnership climbing we agreed to disagree (laughs) 
and didn't talk politics all that much. But we did a good, uh, one of the best routes of the summer on on the north face of peak 19th party of Congress. Uh, 21,000 foot peak. Um, And on that climb, which wasn't very technical, but it was uh, technical as far as that range goes, um, you know, (laughs) up to 50, 60 degree ice. Um, I, I discovered that Climbing at that elevation, uh, at least, was not much different from climbing in the Canadian Rockies uh, once you were acclimatized. Mm -hmm. So that was a good experience for me, even though it was a tragic summer. It re-emphasized my commitment to small teams. uh, I, I don't think big teams in the mountains have any real place. Mm-hmm. All the tragedies, the Everest tragedies, they all stem from too many people mm-hmm. uh, in the mountains at one time. And um, uh, each individual giving up some of their own uh, responsibility to themselves and to each other um, uh, because of that group mentality type thing that might work well in in society but try and insert yourselves into the rhythm of the mountains it's better to go uh, in very small groups and uh, very egalitarian groups where each person has their own um, um, well-being at uh, at their own hands. Mm-hmm. So um, that was my the the trip to Russia to the Pamirs in Tajikistan in 74 was my first uh, experience with higher altitude climbing. It was a good one from the, uh, from the standpoint of the knowledge I gained about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tragedy in terms of, we had, I had a good friend, uh, Gary Ulan die on that trip. Uh, he was, uh, killed in an avalanche caused by uh, an earthquake on the north face of Peak 19, halfway up in a camp. They were buried. And uh, the rest of the team got off okay. Um, But uh, Gary Gary was killed. And when John and I went up, we completed the climb quote in Gary's honor but Mm -hmm. it was that's a not much of an honor uh, to exchange for a a really vibrant uh, person but um, uh, 
let's see, then uh, the very next winter, 75, I um, <laughs> made a pilgrimage to to uh, Scotland, mm -hmm. which is the birthplace of winter mountaineering. The Scots started climbing in there uh, relatively low uh, mountains in winter back in the late 1800s, and uh, they had developed a particularly uh, hardy brand of of uh, mountaineering uh, adventure there, and what do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> even as early as the '30s in Scotland, they were doing quite difficult climbs, mm -hmm. uh, mixed climbs on rock and snow and ice in the winter, with just the simplest tools. I mean, hobnailed boots, maybe a piton or two, mm -hmm. usually with no protection at all other than maybe a sling around a spike of rock. And uh, they, were, <laughs> they were doing some hard climbs. Uh, when I went there in 75, um, I repeated some of those early routes and was... Uh, quite impressed, you know, that they had been doing these things essentially unprotected. The rope was, you know, uh, really just to pull both of them off uh, if one fell, right. you know. <laughs> um, but they, <laughs> and there's one of my favorite books. <laughs> <laughs> favorite climbing books is a book called Mountaineering in Scotland by uh, W.H. Murray and it's so well written. It's a, it's a work of art and it describes this um, uh, this Scottish uh, 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 jolly stoicism. I mean, you know, they have a good time while they're doing this uh, stuff too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the hills aren't so big. You're really out there just for the day and you're back in the pub at night <laughs> telling stories and they're great storytellers. Uh -huh. So it's a brand of mountaineering that's uh, that I found really enjoyable. <clears throat> and. Essentially, it was a pilgrimage for me to go and see the birthplace of this type of climbing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, while, while there, I, uh, I got a job um, working for a month on a film uh, for National Geographic, uh, which was... Um, uh, uh, they were trying to uh, do this film that uh, Yvonne Chouinard had written. It was a fictional 
treatment of ice climbing. It never got completed, but uh, they spent something like $350,000 on helicopter time and stuff. And the good thing for me is uh, I was a rigger on the and a gopher mm-hmm. on this project and uh, we'd get shuttled to the top of Ben Nevis by helicopter in the morning and work down from the summit to wherever the filming location was. And there was so much downtime that some of the other riggers and I would see that there was going to be a big delay in the action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every day it was mostly delay and waiting. So we would kind of wink at each other and drop down the side and run over and simul solo some classic route. So we did a lot of climbing that way <laughs> while getting paid fairly well for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also got to meet some of the um, my heroes of, of uh, that era, era. got to climb a bit with Yvonne, mm-hmm. um, uh, got to meet and hang out with guys like Hamish McInnes, uh, um, <laughs> Tut Braithwaite was there, he was uh, on the uh, Russian trip to from England. Um, Alex McIntyre, a uh, bunch of the good British uh, climbers, and Gordon Smith and I did. Uh, Gordon was uh, probably Scotland's uh, top <laughs> top young. Uh, mountaineer at that time and Gordon and I got to do some good routes together um, made the second ascent of what at the time was Scotland's probably the hardest route called Citadel and uh, Shelterstone Crag so we um, you know it was just a great time and uh, really enjoyed being out on the hill buffet around by the bad weather and there's a lot of bad weather, mm-hmm. but then getting back to the pub at night, and we had a bar tab at the Clack Egg Inn where we were staying, and it was supported by National Geo, mm-hmm. and um, they had you know every scotch you could ever imagine, and and then some. <clears throat> And we sampled it all <laughs> while we were there. All on National Geographic. Yeah, yeah, and the film never got made. I'm not sure why it never got completed. I, I don't know the <laughs> details of that. So, um, (laughs) there were, (laughs) there were several years between 
that trip to Scotland and um, my next trip to the larger ranges. Um, and during that time, I had really gotten focused on this waterfall ice climbing mm -hmm. thing. And I, I, each winter, I would travel around the West looking for waterfalls to climb. And back then, they were all unclimbed. So mm -hmm. uh, my friends and I did probably 200, you know, first ascents of various drips and waterfalls uh, from uh, Colorado right up through the Rockies and into Alaska. Uh, so that was kind of my waterfall era. Mm -hmm. um, and the I think the, though some of the climbs were great after, after having done so many of them, I, grew a little tired of that kind of climbing too. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really um, um, gave me incredible confidence on ice mm -hmm. so that in the mountains, um, <coughs> almost anything that the mountain could present in the way of an ice climbing challenge was um, now, just like rock, it, it didn't uh, bother me. Mm -hmm. I guess I did make a couple of trips to... Uh, no, I didn't make any trips to Peru at that time. So I guess it was mainly um, ice climbing in the winter, then more of the summer rock climbing. And, more of that circuit type of a thing again. And were you still working in Colorado at this time, or what were you, what were you doing for a living? At this time? I had started a um, uh, with my <laughs> brother Mike a climbing school called the International Alpine School and Guide Service, and uh, Mike and uh, Mike uh, sold it to Kevin Donald and myself after a year or so. So Kevin and I ran it for several years until I sold it to uh, my part to Kevin in, I think, about 78. Okay. Um, what did you guys do? I mean, what... we, we taught climbing in El Dorado Springs. We had extension courses as far away as up in the City of Rocks. Mm -hmm. We taught basic rock climbing. Uh, we taught in the winter uh, waterfall ice courses. We started working in Uray, mm -hmm. uh, Colorado, before the ice park, uh, teaching ice climbing down there and opening up the ice climbing possibilities down there. We um, um, we did. I had just a small handful of uh, good, strong climber clients who, for one reason or another, didn't feel confident in uh, leading their own climbs, mm -hmm. but they were capable of following 
good things, and they also uh, were willing to uh, partake of adventures. Mm-hmm. So with I, I, whenever possible, I'd get one of those clients and do a new route with them mm-hmm. somewhere in the mountains or on the rocks or uh, a wall or whatever. And I really enjoyed that because it's best of, uh, of all worlds, getting paid to <laughs> do a new route with a good partner. And I always preferred to lead anyway. Right. So there was no argument there <laughs> with the clients. So that was, uh, you know, and it, it was really eking an existence out you know i mean uh toward the end of my involvement kevin and i differed as to whether we should put more money back into the school and um and try and grow it or take all the money out that we were uh uh earning in terms of fees and stuff Mm -hmm. and Kevin wanted to keep taking it out and I wanted to try and grow the school a a bit and get it established and well I have to imagine that you know in the mid to late 1970s that uh, a climbing school would have to be something of a luxury I mean what, what kind of clientele were you getting We were getting it across the board, you know. I mean, I had worked for Outward Bound in the early part of the 70s, and it's the same kind of people, Uh you know. Some people barely had two nickels to rub together, and they'd save and scrimp and come on these courses. And then there were others that were wealthy, and they'd come with $3,000 of new clothing and gear, (laughs) you know. And uh, so it was across the board. It it wasn't that much different than trying to run a climbing school today. Okay. Uh, whereas today, there's hundreds of them mm-hmm. trying to do it in the country. Back then, there were, you know, maybe a dozen or two. Okay. And so relative to the demand, there's probably a similar challenge to make it work. Hmm. And we were actually making it work, but not much more than that. And uh, um, I was hoping to take it to the next level. There was an old hotel I wanted to buy down in um, uh, Uray mm-hmm. to headquarter out of. I wanted to move from El Dorado Springs down to Uray. <clears throat> and run winter and summer courses down there. And I wish we had bought the hotel because we could have picked it up for $50,000 back then. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, well, now it'd be worth, you know, three, four million dollars. So just buying that hotel would have made more money than anything else we could have done and you had some experience in the hotel business your family ran one day well yeah but i i had no experience 
But the hotel we were going to use mainly to run, there were 14 rooms in it. There was a saloon downstairs, which would have been perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we would have had everything we needed. Um, uh, we would have kept it populated mostly with clients. But Kevin didn't want to make that kind of commitment. Mm -hmm. And so it was either I buy it from him or he buy it from me. Um, and that meant one of us paid the other a dollar and assumed the debts. <laughs> and he wanted it. So, and there wasn't much debt, but we needed to replace all this old ratty equipment and ropes, you know. Uh, which we had bought a few years before and and needed, <laughs> you know, it was just getting uh, to the point where I felt we needed to either step up to the plate or not. So. And after you sold it to Kevin, what happened? You know? Well, he, <laughs> Kevin turned around. He's a pretty sharp businessman and... Uh, Oh, I think within six months, he turned around and sold it to a former student of ours who I didn't think should be running a, a climbing school and sold it for something like $30,000 within six months. Wow. And so Kevin did okay. <laughs> Sounds like he did. So my next, uh, <laughs> by this time I was really anxious to get to the big mountains and do not climbs like Everest or, uh, <clears throat> you know, large expeditions. I wanted to go to the Himalayas and do the, um, the best uh, alpine climbs, uh, that are available there. And often those are on somewhat smaller peaks, but one of the most dramatic peaks in the Himalayas, now, uh, the peak itself was unclimbed, mm -hmm. but it also had probably the, <coughs> one, one of the most beautiful and uh, difficult <coughs> looking faces and ridges on it was, uh, excuse me, <laughs> was the uh, north ridge of um, Latak 1 in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And that's Latak 1 is 23,000. Four four hundred and forty feet, I think, high, and uh, the North Ridge is eight thousand feet from the glacier at the base to the summit, and it's a very steep and um, <coughs> uh, dramatic, uh, difficult uh, rock and ice ridge. And I forget whether it was my cousin George or I that had the 
idea first to try and climb this. Mm -hmm. uh, but it had a photo had been published in a magazine called Mountain Magazine, which is a British publication. Mm -hmm. Just uh, probably sometime in the mid 70s. And uh, that caught both of our eyes. Mm -hmm. And we said, now, this is something we should we should look into. Mm -hmm. So we planned a trip for uh, the spring of, or summer of 1978. And uh, we, um, we were pretty much committed to Alpine style, which means a small team. And mm -hmm. I think we've talked about what Alpine style means. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we thought we should probably have a larger team than just the two of us. So we invited Michael Kennedy, who was the editor of uh, Climbing Magazine and um, a, a partner uh, of mine, a, a really good, solid climber in his own right, and uh, J Jim Danini, mm -hmm. who. I had met um, when I needed an instructor for uh, one of my winter courses at the Alpine School. Mm -hmm. um, Jim taught for me and uh, got to know him a little. He's a very strong climber. Very, uh, he was one of the, the best free climbers in Yosemite at, the, at that time. Mm -hmm. And he was also... Um, <coughs> Uh, quite a good ice climber and very interested in the larger mountains. So, uh, so it was the four of us mm -hmm. that made up this team. It was your cousin George and you, right? Yeah. Okay. And we went to uh, Pakistan in uh, June of uh, seventy-eight and. Um, walked into the mountain. I think we had 20, 15 or 20 porters to bring our food and gear into base camp. And, um, and my uncle, George, uh, George's dad and, and a fellow uh, uh, surgeon of friend of his, Ralph uh, Becker or Baker, mm -hmm. went along to, to walk into base camp. It was fun to have those guys along. Mm -hmm. They were probably in their early 60s at that point, I would say. And uh, they were uh, both very adventurous sorts, and they were having a great time playing kind of... Um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark characters, you know, what's that guy's name? Um, Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones type thing. I've, I just remember they were a lot of fun to have along. Yeah. <clears throat> Very good natured guys. And, uh, you know, so we had the, the youth. I was uh, 20, 27 at the time. Mike was... I think a year younger, and then these guys were in their 60s, and but we had a great time on the walk in. 
one problem for me personally was I got uh, uh, in Skardu, which is the highest village before you actually start walking in. It's kind of your last staging place where you could, you know, buy local uh, food and stuff mm -hmm. and get your porters together and uh, for the walk-in. Uh, I came down with a, uh, an incredible fever mm -hmm. that put me under for about five days there. Wow. And um, they weren't, the docs weren't sure what it was. <clears throat> Uh, in retrospect, getting back to the States after the trip, I had a doctor who was really conversant with the illnesses of the region diagnose it in, in, uh, as um, probably dengue fever. Uh -huh. And um, anyway, so I had had uh, a real rough week after just arriving there. Um, <coughs> But uh, when the porters were all uh, gathered and the food had been bought, I was well enough to start the walk in. Yeah. Um, so we walked in, and as we walked in, I got better and better. And by the time we got to base camp, I felt fine. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't spend enough time in base camp acclimatizing. The weather was good. We got there, I don't know how many days it was, only two or three days at the 15,000-foot base camp mm -hmm. before we started up the ridge. And we started up in what isn't a pure alpine style. We had some debates among the team whether we should, you know, go really light with about a week's worth of food and um, provisions and, you know, try to keep our packs down to 45 pounds or so, you know, right. starting off, uh, or go heavier. And, and uh, the trouble with compromising at all on that is as soon as you add one ounce of extra food or gear, you've got to add another ounce to, it just compounds. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with this kind of midway approach where we took eight ropes with us, which, and then we, we would <coughs> plan to string the ropes between camps, not back to the bottom of the route, but, um, you know, so eight ropes is essentially about 1,500, 1,600 feet of rope so we could move that far between camps mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I think it turned out to be one of the reasons we didn't ultimately climb the route but um, we uh, you know nothing like that had been done in an alpine style uh, in the Himalayas before, right. um, so it was a pioneering effort, and um, we spent um, three weeks climbing up the ridge with um, 
just wonderful rock and ice and two major storms that kept us pinned down for one, I think, a week. And then, uh, you know, we ran a, we had 17 days of food with us. And after three weeks, we were um, about uh, 700 feet below the top in a uh, ice cave we had dug out and another major storm came on. And then uh, we were essentially out of food. We had what we called donkey dick left, was, which was big, ugly pieces of sausage mm -hmm. and a little bit of tea and soup, and that was it. So we were making donkey dick soup <laughs> and, and drinking uh, some tea, and that was our food. And in that snow cave during the storm, I, um, I came down with a recurrence of the fever that I had had on a walk in. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, I find out that that's the process of uh, dengue fever is you have the initial severe bout of it, and then about a month later, you'll have another bout, not quite as severe, and it tends to go in about month-long periods where it's less and less <laughs> less and less severe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I didn't know that, and it uh, I had another terrible fever for three or four days the storm kept going but I just told the guys that look we're either gonna have to go up now or I'm you know I I gotta go down or so you know yeah. so we all got up in the midst of the storm one day and headed for the top did a, a two or three more pitches uh, completed the last of the technical difficulties had uh, maybe 300 feet of a uh, 50 degree ice runnel to go to the summit ridge mm -hmm. and then a almost horizontal traverse over to the summit but I was moving so slow and the storm was uh, still pretty um, severe and at the end of this one pitch that I had led because I felt I needed to lead uh, my share, you know, Danini came up to me and when he got to me, he said, Jeff, th that's it. You're going down, you know. And I, I uh, tried to convince him that two of them should go to the top and, and one could go back to the cave with me, but, um, the, you know, they wouldn't do that. Um, mm. They, you know, no one would was willing to uh, take that chance of, right. you know, weakening the overall party. And so in retrospect, that was, to me, um, probably the the best part of the trip is the the type of commitment to the group the the team that 
all the individuals showed. I was disappointed at the time because I really wanted at least, you know, a couple of us to get to the right. top. Yeah. And if I couldn't be one of them, that was fine. But, you know, let's finish the route. And we were so close. We were really, I, you know, I think in normal conditions, it's just a few hours to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went down and <laughs> back to the cave, and it was... Uh, we spent another day or two there, I guess, and I just got worse. And um, finally, in the middle of the storm still going on, they just bundled me up and separated my load among the rest of them. The loads were light at this they point. There was no food. Uh, we had some left at the halfway point that we had left down there. And uh, we started rappelling into the storm and um, bivouacked uh, somewhere halfway down to the halfway point. They all told me they were sure I was going to be dead in the morning. And anyway, but the next morning I was feeling better. And as we continued down, I felt better and better. Yeah, the fever had broken and... And uh, so that was probably one of the most complete uh, climbing experiences I've had. That was 26 days we, we spent on Flat Talk and didn't get to the top, but it was a great uh, team and, you know, really full effort. Mm-hmm. And the climbing was fantastic. and. All the good stuff except no summit. No summit. Yeah. And which maybe makes it better because, you know, when you get to the summit, that gives you a place to hang all your memories and maybe override some of the other Hmm. memories of what it took to get there, you know. Yeah. And uh, without the summit, all you've got is all the memories of the process Mm -hmm. so so it was a great uh, that was a great experience this is john worsencroft and i'm sitting down with jeff Lowe once again Um, i'm joined by uh, matt driscoll as well and it is uh, september 29th and it's about four o'clock in the afternoon Uh, jeff why don't you go ahead well uh since we were talking about ended with Latok last time, mm-hmm. which was a great climb without a summit, um, I'll go, I, the impact that Latok had on me personally was it opened my mind to the possibilities of uh, uh, of doing these big technical routes in the Himalayas um, in a lightweight st- style. And um, Latak was the ultimate proof of that, even though we didn't quite get to the summit. So 
the next year I had a uh, invitation from Tom Tom Frost to go on a um, trip uh, financed by ABC TV to make the second ascent of Amade Blom in Nepal and film it for the, uh, the American Sportsman program mm -hmm. or wild, wide world of sport. I forget what it was called. And uh, so, although I had, as I think we talked about, uh, me forming my opinions of big expeditions early on, and I didn't seem like climbing to me. Right. Um, You're talking about like Everest and. Uh, yeah, but even, you know, when they go to the Himalayas to a smaller peak, a lot of people go with the same fixed robes, fix, fixed camp mentality, and, mm -hmm. you know, using Sherpas to do most of the work and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Right. Um, <coughs> but, and, and ironically, we would have to do kind of the same approach to in order to film this climb, because back in those days, you didn't have digital cameras that weigh about two pounds and fit in your pocket. Right. You know, these days you can actually climb and make a film of, um, you know, a, a very lightweight two, two person climb of the most difficult route. I mm -hmm. mean, you can film each other climbing and, and do it. And in fact, I, I just uh, hosted a uh, mini mountain film festival here in Ogden uh, last Friday. Um, and we had a guy here uh, as a guest of honor, Steve House, who had made a, a film two years ago about uh, in exactly this style with he and two other guys on a very hard route in the Karakoram. It was quite a good film. Hmm. So that's changed everything. But th back then we had 16 millimeter cameras weighing 15 to 20 pounds each and the film loads and, have you know, Mm -hmm. Longest magazine you've got is 400 feet or something. Gives you five minutes of film right. or something, and so it it was a much more cumbersome filmmaking process. So we went to this uh, um, uh, to Bomb, which is one of the most beautiful mountains um, anywhere, really, and. <clears throat> We made the the second ascent and made the film, but as we did that, I realized that this I got to the top and it hadn't seemed like climbing to me. It was everything that I knew that style of expeditioning was, which was cumbersome and slow and mm -hmm. not very committing and. Um, 
just not satisfying. So when we got back to base camp after um, after after getting to the summit, I asked Dave uh, Dave Brashears, who was on his first trip to the Himalayas and had been a, an assistant on the project if he would like to accompany me on a new route on the south face of uh, um, the, the Blom mm -hmm. and um, uh, for whatever reason Dave didn't want to do that so so I um, decided I wanted to do it anyway so I climbed it myself it took me about 10 hours on the on the face and um, you know it's a it would be a pretty hard route in the Alps if it was there and it's about 4,500 feet high to a 22 and a half thousand foot peak mm -hmm. and it uh, uh, it opened my mind to what could really be done by uh, yeah, lightweight meaning one person with 10 pounds of gear in a little pack mm -hmm. um, in the Himalayas and I think that was really the first um, uh, solo first ascent of a difficult route on mm -hmm. a major Himalayan peak. Hmm. What kind of gear did you take? I uh, took, um, well, just the clothes I was wearing and my ice tools and crampons and uh, one or two pitons, a couple of nuts and uh, and uh, uh, about a hundred feet of rope, mm -hmm. and that was it, um, and some water. And uh, I, I climbed the face in about 10 hours, and then uh, I got in a snowstorm about a, oh, 500 feet below the summit. Mm -hmm. And it continued to snow as I came down on to our old high camp on the west uh, southwest ridge and um, the a tent had been left there and so I um, although the storm had started to clear it was um, pretty late in the afternoon so I just crawled into the tent and found that there was a uh, stove and a butane cartridge and so I and a book in the tent uh, called yes I do it was a stupid book called called compromising positions and and uh, although the title was appropriate uh, for my situation but I spent the night alternately reading the book and uh, running the stove and then falling asleep and, and then it would get cold and I'd wake up and start the stove and got through the night that way but um, uh, the reason I spent the night and didn't continue down was I 
had, uh, in order to get permission to go back up on the mountain and not piss the Nepalis off, mm -hmm. um, I asked the liaison officer, who's the government-mandated uh, spy on the trip, I mean, not, you know, some liaison officer, officers are great and others are not so great. But um, I had told them that my interest was in going up and cleaning off. Uh, there was this tent left at the high camp. There were fixed ropes left all the way to the high camp. And I told them uh, that what I was going to do is take a kind of a shortcut to get there. And, and I got permission that way to do that. Uh, so my shortcut was up over the mountains <laughs> to, to the hiking. And um, uh, so the next day I loaded up the tent and started down the ridge. And there were probably 5,000 feet of fixed ropes mm -hmm. to remove. And I put as many as I could on my pack as I went down, but pretty quickly it got to about 60 or maybe even 80 pounds. Wow. So I couldn't carry anymore, and I just cut them off as I went. So I cleaned at least the ridge of the, the trash that uh, we had left on the way up, and no one else seemed to be very worried about um, so I did, did my new route, and I felt better about leaving the mountain somewhat clean anyway, although we had dropped, I had dropped the ropes, a bunch of ropes down the sides of the ridge, mm. you know, which didn't, isn't what I would have liked to have done. Right. And the good thing about that was, though, um, the next fall, that was a spring, uh, spring of 79, and the next fall, Reinhold Master had a group up there, mm -hmm. and they didn't get very far on the mountain, and he commented on the fixed ropes that they had expected to find to help them that weren't there. So I felt good. <laughs> But that was a climb that opened my mind. I, I got to the top of that climb in 10 hours and felt like I could have bivouacked and done another 4,500 foot climb the next day. And uh, I, I just felt very strong. And, and uh, it opened my mind up to possibilities in the Himalayas. So I was, at this point, I was really on a, on a kind of a, uh, oh, I don't know, um, um, I was following a vision of doing the best technical routes on a succession of higher and higher peaks in the Himalayas. Uh, that would ultimately 
lead up to the highest peaks by the best routes in a lightweight alpine style mm-hmm. or uh, solo. And, um, and that quest really lasted for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the very next year I went with uh, Mike Kennedy to a mountain in Pakistan called Skiang Kangri, S-K-Y-A-N-G, K-A, capital K-A-N-G-R-I. Um, it's right next to K2, and it's uh, just under 25,000 feet high. And Mike and I tried to do a... Um, um, a good uh, technical route on that uh, peak. And um, we had uh, originally intended to do the west face, but we got about a third of the way up the west face. And the rock was kind of a... um, crackless marble limestone that wasn't going very well Mm -hmm. and we decided to come down and uh, so we tried a route on the south face and that went quite well but I had started up with a chest cold Mm -hmm. and uh, and, um, as I climbed higher it got worse and worse, and uh, we got in a storm at about 23,000 feet, just where the route we, the buttress we, we were following hits the ridge that was the line of the original Japanese ascent mm-hmm. on the peak. And we got in this storm, And uh, overnight, uh, that's gonna. I don't. I don't need to answer it. I just the uh, ringing is gonna bother us a little bit. Okay. All right, go ahead. So anyway, we got in this storm, and we were bivouacked in two separate hanging enclosed hammocks Mm -hmm. and uh, (coughs) these hammocks were made of Gore-Tex material so um, and Gore-Tex works great at keeping out the wind and you know it actually works very well at altitude Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, it doesn't ice up. I mean, it ices up overnight, but as soon as you light a stove, it pushes the moisture, it melts the ice and pushes the moisture through the fabric. 
So it really works well at altitude. Mm -hmm. But if you aren't running a stove, it ices up and doesn't breathe. Mm -hmm. And these, uh, these uh, enclosed hammock tents, we have a little tube uh, uh, ventilation uh, tubes on them. But the storm was so bad that I had closed mine up completely. And I think the combination of the chest cold plus the shutting off the ventilation, I developed such a huge headache that night. Then finally, uh, my partner, Mike Kennedy, uh, yelled to me because he heard me moaning and stuff open your vent holes you know I, I did but it was too late i had had uh i think a mini stroke and i had uh, uh pulmonary edema in the morning um, and so i was in bad shape you know um but luckily, the storm had kind of eased off, and we were essentially on this ridge, which was quite easy, the line of the original ascent. Mm -hmm. So we just traversed sideways on the ridge and then started down okay. and spent, a, a day, I think, the rest of that day Part of the next day getting down and uh, it was really amazing to me how weak I became literally on the way down uh, it, there were a couple places where the ridge went up for like 20 feet and I would be on my hands and knees it would take me an hour to crawl that 20 feet to get up to the hump, you know, mm -hmm. where we would be going down again. But by the time we got back to the base of the climb, you know, I was low enough that the um, PE was uh, subsiding. And by the time we got back to base camp, I was okay. Back. <laughs> no, no, I was wiped out, but um, so that was the end of that attempt. But it did, uh, I, I have to talk about one little innovation. Sure. Uh, as a result of that, I realized that any tent at altitude that uh, has a impermeable uh, layer in the fabric, such as Gore-Tex, Gore you need to have vents that don't have to be closed ever. So what I did was test a little testing and I came up with uh, an insert for the tube style vents that was just simply a, a speaker grill foam. You know, it, that stiff kind of foam that's like little springy wire stuff. Uh -huh. Yeah, about an inch thick, 
I can cut a disc of that and plug it in the end of the um, the vent tube, and you could leave the the vents open in the worst weather, mm -hmm. and the weather wouldn't wouldn't uh, you know snow or rain doesn't come in. Right. And so that was uh, the solution to that problem that I used from then on. And people still get asphyxiated in tents. Absolutely. Uh, um, so that was ski I'll just go through the, the this the climbs that were kind of on this progression of uh, climbs leading to the you know my ultimate vision, which was the west face of Makalu, but I'll get to that. Um, and there were plenty of other climbs during the 80s too, but um, in, in 1981, I went on one of my few big expeditions. And I went on this one because it was a medical research expedition funded by the National Heart and Lung Association. Um, but it was a huge deal uh, to Everest. And I think it had a $600,000 budget. And, and, you know, uh, it was, uh, there were, I think eight main climbers and then a, about that number or more of doctors along with different research projects that they had going. And I, I agreed to go for two reasons. One is the climbing leader, John Evans, had, uh, had agreed that I could climb without bottled oxygen and I wanted to see how I did at those elevations um, without uh, supplementary oxygen and then I was interested in in the research uh, personally and in general you know do you remember what kind of I mean Obviously, not all of them, but do you remember what kind of research projects they were doing? Or? Yeah, there there was a lot of um, uh, blood studies being carried out. I mean, we took blood samples from uh, various elevations all the way up the mountain, and uh, they were testing for different. Uh, um, well. There, there's two books written about the expedition. Uh, both of them are by John West, uh, the scientific leader of the trip. And um, one was uh, more popular consumption and the other one was the scientific, the summary of scientific results. <clears throat> but, um, they had tests designed to uh, to um, 
the reason this, uh, this trip was paid for by the Heart and Lung Association was they felt they could perform tests on healthy climbers mm -hmm. at high elevation that would put them under a type of stress that may, may be an emphysemic uh, patient at sea level would be under. And um, uh, I'm not sure that that actually correlates that well, but they were, it was a way to sell this, um, this trip. And I, I mean, John West and the scientists along were uh, totally uh, serious scientists. Mm -hmm. So, um, but some of the information I got, what personally out of it, was I got to find my own, uh, find out what my own response to high high altitude what was not just uh, how it felt, but literally down to what was happening physiologically with me and how I respond to that. And so I got a lot of information uh, from, you know, that told me a lot about what I could uh, expect or anticipate in the future hmm. at uh, high elevations. And one of the things that, um, that was uh, unique to me among the Westerners is um, uh, uh, my uh, uh, my response to hypoxia or my um, my um, uh, drive to uh, it's called um, um, oh I forget what but you know when your oxygen gets low and your your blood oxygen content goes down mm -hmm. um, it um, there's a point at which you'll start breathing faster and deeper. And with most uh, of the Westerners, they don't go very low before they start breathing real hard and stuff. Hmm. Now, the Sherpas, will, their, their blood oxygen uh, level will go quite low before they um, respond with increased uh, rapid breathing. And uh, my uh, response was more typical of a Sherpa's, but um, I'm not sure that that correlates in any way, direct way to, um, to whether or not that you know, there are so many other factors involved sure. that that's just one factor. But the truth is that my blood oxygen level would go very low mm -hmm. before I'd respond with increased uh, ventilatory drive. It's called ventilatory drive. Mm. And at any rate, that trip just 
it was a wonderful trip, you know, good research and all that, but it just reminded me how anti-climbing it really is, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And we did a, a variation on the South Call route. We did a more direct um, route to the um, uh, to the South Call, but it's it wasn't inter interesting climbing. It was just uh, pretty much slogging. But you did summit though. No, I didn't summit Everest. Oh. I I went to. Uh, if we had been on the South Call Road, I went to a level on our route that I could look down and over to the South Call, but I was below the South Summit and we had bad weather and went down. And then um, because my friend and I, Mike Weiss and I, we were not using uh, bottled oxygen and and we hadn't put anyone on the summit uh, yet. They gave several groups who were willing to use bottled oxygen a chance to, to go up before we would get our second chance. Mm -hmm. And they did summit, but then the weather came in again and they, uh, you know, the expedition was over. So. Mm -hmm. um, that's the another thing about big expeditions, you know, you're you're just a, a cog in, and uh, it's very it's like being in the, in the army, mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't. I joined the army if I wanted to be in the <laughs> army. <laughs> so I mean, getting. It wasn't a big deal to sound to you. I mean, was it? No, I was interested in the uh, to, to have climbed Everest that style uh -huh. wouldn't mean anything to right. me. Do you remember a lot of guys on the expedition that were? I mean, really, probably pretty pumped about. Oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. No, it it was. You know, um, it would have been fine if I had gotten to the top without oxygen, mm -hmm. without additional bottled oxygen. But uh, even that, you know, I'm more into, uh, have always been into good technical climbing. Right. And the best, uh, my vision once again was a progression of uh, the best routes, the most technical, most difficult routes on the peaks gradually higher and higher, higher leading mm -hmm. to the best routes on the highest peaks. And unfortunately, Everest doesn't have any great technical routes to do. The southwest face is hardly technical. And, you know, it it had already been climbed by then by an expedition and not, not very interesting anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, Everest doesn't hold a lot, but some of the other 14, uh, some of the uh, 8,000 meter peaks have some really good climbing to do on them. And so Everest would not be the top of the list of my, you know, world's best climb. 
times. Right. Um, but I did get a lot of information mm -hmm. uh, about myself on that that trip, and it was fun to be with these doctors and scientists who had devised all these. I mean, we did all kinds of tests at various elevations and camps. We had insulated igloos that we took apart in pieces and brought brought up to base camp. And you know, it was it was uh, like being part of a big scientific study because it was, and um, the. Uh, the um, so the next year, I was back on my program of of you know doing good alpine style climbs, and I went to um, um, well my my wife at the time, or she actually she was my girlfriend at the time, fiance, I guess. What was her name again? Uh, Janie okay. Hannigan um, came to meet me after the Everest trip in base camp. And we went trekking at the end of that trip. And we walked up the Gokio Valley mm -hmm. and, um, No, it wasn't Gokio Valley. It's up the. Um, oh, I forget the name of the valley, but it's it's one of the kind of fingers of the Kumbu. Um, um, I'll have to think of the name sure, of no the problem. valley. But we walked up there, and we walked up past a village called Hungo, and above that village is. A beautiful big face on a mountain called um, uh, Kwangde, K W A N G D E. And um, I hadn't seen this face before, and when I saw it, it was love at first sight. And 5,000 foot uh, face of granite very steep with these little rivulets, rivulets of ice mm. running down it. And it was just, um, well, I, I really had to do this climb. So, um, and Janie at that time was uh, aware of how I could be. And she said, well, Jeff, you you know, get a partner and come back next year and do this. And so I, I did. I invited David Brashears uh, the next year, and Kwong Day was actually going to be a warm up climb for um, uh, an attempt on the south face of Dalagiri. So we came back in the fall of. 82, um, well, late fall, early winter of 82, to do um, uh, 
Kwangde uh, as a warm-up and then go on to uh, the south face of Dalagiri, which is, Kwangde uh, is kind of like um, taking the sport of ice climbing and, and, and at, at that time it, it was taking that to a new level. But in terms of the Himalayas, the biggest walls in the Himalayas, it's not that big. It's 4,500, 5,000 feet. And uh, the summit is um, uh, 21 or something. And so it's not a huge mountain, but uh, the climbing just looked excellent. So, but the south face of Dalagiri is like 12,000 feet high and it's on a 26,000 foot peak. And that that's more in line with the, the biggest goals to attempt there. And, um, it has since been done, um, but at that time it hadn't been done and neither had Kwangde. And so Dave and I went over and we spent four days on Kwangde, had a great climb, really good um, experience. And uh, it was, <clears throat> At that time, probably the world's uh, uh, probably the best ice climbing in the world, but we were using it as a warm up for the real thing. And uh, but af after the climb, Dave, who hadn't had much Himalayan experience at that point, uh, decided he didn't want to go on to. Dalagiri, so we never got on Dalagiri. Huh. Um, was I mean, when you said it, it, it brought ice climbing to a new level, I mean, do you mean like it was just so prolonged amounts of time on the ice, or no? It, it was it was taking. Um, well, to go back a little bit, mm -hmm. ice climbing uh, started in the Alps as an expression or a as a way to get to the summits. Mm -hmm. And then it gradually developed in the 1920s and 30s into, uh, uh, in, uh, on the alpine faces, leaving the ridge and ridges and going to the faces where it was steeper and steeper. But by the late 60s, the most difficult alpine routes had been done, and <clears throat> the steepness of those rarely exceeded 60 degrees mm -hmm. for any distance. And <clears throat> then in the late 60s, some tools were developed that allowed you to actually climb steeper ice mm -hmm. in a reasonable uh, way and so then we started doing waterfall ice and my experience with waterfall ice allowed me to start looking at more difficult routes in um, in the mountains and 
I'd already starting do, started to do some of those climbs in the Canadian Rockies, the Tetons, and, and elsewhere. But in the Himalayas, I call it off-season off ice. It's not there all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to get the freeze-thaw of the spring or, or autumn season. Mm -hmm. And so you get melt water freezing into runnels and stuff. And often they're very thin and, and it, it can, you can get ice on much steeper sections of rock mm -hmm. than you ever would with just the pure alpine ice. And so this thing, these things on Kuang Day were steeper than, it's kind of like waterfall ice steepness mm -hmm. on a huge face right. in the Himalayas. So that's why it was a, it was kind of a breakthrough. It didn't have a second ascent until I think about 2000, uh, early 2000s. And although it had been tried, uh, well, actually our route didn't get a second ascent until last year and it's still state of the art. So hmm. um, a couple of French guys did it last year and and they took about the same amount of time on it as we did. Mm -hmm. And so, excuse me. Uh, Ready? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, the Kwang Day was the first of several climbs that happened in a 12 or 13 month period, which were really good for me. Um, I went to um, Peru um, the next summer, and the best climb um, I did was with Al Alex Lowe on, uh, on a mountain called uh, Taularahu, which is T-A-U-L-L-I-R-A-J-H-U. Um, and uh, it means um, ice flower or something like that. Um, but it's absolutely gorgeous peak. And uh, it has this beautiful route to do, which we did on it in the south, um, probably the southwest buttress, but it's again, pretty much a pure ice climb, not some mixed climbing on it. But Alex and I spent several days climbing that uh, buttress and, um, uh, and then traversing the mountain down the uh, southeast side and um, the, the climb by Himalaya, Himalayan standards was not um, uh, particularly difficult or significant, but it was a really good climb uh, for, by, by uh, Andean standards. Mm -hmm. And 
it was my best climb, climb with Alex, and Alex was kind of the ultimate climbing partner. Hmm. Um, he was always up, and uh, nothing ever got him down. He could climb anything, hmm. and uh, we just had a great time together. And uh, the climb would not be really on this progression of things in the Himalayas, but it stands out to me just for the quality of the climbing and the, the, the partner Alex was especially, uh, he was just exceptional as a human and a climber. Um, <clears throat> And then the next fall, I went back to um, Nepal with uh, um, Earl Wiggins, who was uh, one of the best rock climbers in America at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had done some really great solo climbs. Um, in the Black Canyon, he had done a couple of uh, long routes in the Black Canyon solo in one day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the time, they, they were mind-blowing. Uh, this would, you know, 83, I guess. Or, um, and Earl had started doing some mountain routes and ice climbing, and so we went to... Um, Nepal to do a new route on Pumori, which is a neighbor of Everest, mm -hmm. nice pyramidal-shaped peak, and then uh, follow that up with an attempt on the southeast pillar of uh, Nupsi, which is part of the uh, Everest, Lhotse, Nupsi kind of horseshoe mm -hmm. ridge. And it's uh, 20, just under 26,000 feet. And uh, Earl got sick. Um, uh, in um, base camp, actually, he got pulmonary and uh, cerebral edema. So uh, the uh liaison officer and um and the uh Sirdar, the head chirp and I walked him down to a lower elevation to a little town called uh I think it's Punkitanga, I'm not sure. Uh and um he was doing better down there. Uh, because he, it was down at about eight, no 12,000 uh, 12, feet and we brought him down from 17 and a half so Earl agreed that he'd uh, stay there with the um, I think the Sirdar and come back up more, more slowly in a week or so, 
and I'm going to have to stop for sure. a minute and go take. So, um, Rilla and I had gone over there to uh, try a route on the south face of uh, Pumori, and um, Earl got sick in base camp. I left him down in Pukitanga with the uh, Sirdar, I think, and um, he was supposed to come up after spending a week or so acclimatizing and then slowly coming up. So, uh, because even after, after you've had uh, pulmonary edema, if you Sometimes you can go down to a lower elevation and come back up slowly. It's more likely you won't be able to, but sometimes you can. Mm -hmm. So that was his only hope for, for really being able to continue with the climb. But I, I knew Earl wouldn't, um, wouldn't wait long enough and I, I also knew that the chances of him being able to actually do the climb after that were were uh, very small mm -hmm. so I thought what I'd do is go back up to base camp pretty quick and just quickly do the climb on my own mm -hmm. so that when he got up there there would be no um, no you know, it would be, be done, and I would, I figured I'd explain it to him then. <laughs> so, I went up uh, to base camp, and I did the day after getting to base camp. I hiked up the uh, old glacier to... Um, the base of the south face, mm -hmm. and I decided against doing the route that Earl and I had gone to climb, uh, just because at least that way I wouldn't, I could tell Earl that, well, I didn't do the route we, we came to do together. Uh, and so I decided to uh, make the, the second ascent. This was winter by the way, too, so mm -hmm. it was a winter climb as well. But uh, I decided I'd make the second ascent of um, a route that had been done by a uh, group of uh, Chamonix guides, uh, French guides, uh, ten, 10 years before mm -hmm. in 1973, but they had used 10,000 feet of fixed ropes and done it in the old expedition style. And I thought I'd just see what I could do on my own. And I went up and I did a variation of their route and spent two and uh, three days climbing up it and another day to get down. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a good climb, not particularly hard, but it was um, as a solo and as a winter solo was a good uh, experience. And uh, 
But as I walked in to base camp, um, there's, uh, I, there, there was the liaison officer, the cook, mm-hmm. and the sirdar were there. And they told me that Earl had come back up. And that day he had already gone up to the base of the route that uh, we had planned to do together. And I, um, um, they handed a letter to me from him. And he said, well, you know, looks like he had a great climb and stuff and now i'm going up to do my climb and we had planned to go over to uh the south pillar of noopsy southeast pillar of noopsy afterwards and earl in his letter said and well i don't mind if you uh take the sherpas and move camp over to there uh but would you mind just waiting for me before doing the climb this time? And but my concern was that it was way too fast for him to be back up there, mm-hmm. and it, it was a crazy idea. But I'd just come down from three, uh, no, four really hard days on the mountain, you know, mm-hmm. and. And so, uh, you know, it was late afternoon. It was evening already, so I, there was nothing I could do. I mean, I ate some, the Sherpas fed me some dalbat and tea, and I crawled into my tent and fell asleep. But then, somewhere in the middle of the night, I heard just clear as day, help. And it couldn't have been from Earl because he was a mile and a half away up the glacier. I mean, there was just no way it could be Earl, but I knew it was Earl. And uh, I woke the Sherpas, and uh, they hadn't heard it. And they're going, what What are you getting us up in the middle of the night for? But um, but in fact, I, I, I just, I had hurt like Earl had been right there. Right. Um, so we, um, I rousted them up. We grabbed some packs and a little gear, headlamps, and walked up the glacier. Yeah, you know, and started trying to find Earl, yelling for him and stuff. And mm. we went all the way up to the Bergschrund, almost all the way to the Bergschrund at the base mm-hmm. of this route. And didn't hear anything. The Sherpas are gone. Oh, we should be back in camp in bed that you didn't hear Earl, you know? Uh, And uh, so we turn around to go down. And as we turn around, I see a glow behind this boulder, just the faintest, uh, that's not natural. It's two, the boulders, you know, uh, there's some light over there. So, run over and it's Earl 
and he's lying on his side on the ice, the old gray glacier ice, uh, in a pool, kind of a pool of his own um, fluids are surrounding his mouth. I think he's dead. But I get down next to him, and he says, uh, what took you so long? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I was relieved he was alive, but um, um, barely, and he wasn't going to be alive much longer. That was about 17 and a half or 18,000 feet. And the problem with that area of the mountains is very, you got to go a long ways out on almost flat to get to where you can go down and lose sig significant elevation, mm -hmm. which is the only thing that would save his life. Right. So I uh, sent um, the, um, we had a kitchen boy, I think. Anyway, I think the kitchen boy went out to try and radio for a hel helicopter from Lobache, the uh, mm -hmm. nearest village, several hours away. And in the meantime, uh, I cut some holes in Earl's pack mm -hmm. and we loaded him into that pack so his legs were dangling out there and then we tied his legs up on, on the... Um, on the waist mm -hmm. and it was a good low pack so we <laughs> anyway so and the, the LO and the um, Sirdar and I took turns carrying Earl and we walked you know down towards um, Lobache and just it got this was all in the night still right. and Finally, it, it turned uh, day, and probably sometime around nine o'clock, we're getting close to Lobache, and um, and um, uh, we get word that the helicopter uh, they couldn't get through on the radio. So, but they brought a yak, so we tied Earl onto the Back and kept going down to Parache. And Parache is about 14,000 feet or 14 and a half. So that's, you know, enough lower that it's a good thing. Yeah. And then there's a Trekkers Hospital there too. Not much. It's a, it's, you know, it's a regular hut and mm -hmm. stuff. But they've got a, um, uh, hyper hyperbaric chamber there. and uh, so we stick Earl when there's a doctor there too many and we stick Earl in the hyperbaric chamber and within an hour you can look through little portals like a submarine and within an hour Earl's in there smiling and That's giving the thumbs up because the elevation or the pressure 
has been brought down like another 7,000 feet. So he stays in there overnight and I go to, you know, they lead me to a room to sleep in a flea infested sleeping bag. And I, I, at this time I've been going five days straight really hard. I'm more than wasted. And uh, so I just, I'm out like a light for 12 hours and get up the next day and um, Earl's sitting out there on a, he spent the night in the chamber and he's doing better, but he's sitting out on a little rock wall with an oxygen mask on and just looking at the scenery. And anyway, so Earl uh, went down continued on down with uh, one of the Sherpas, or a couple of Sherpas, and I went back to base camp to collect our stuff. And, hmm. uh, but that was the end of that trip, of course. <laughs> Did you ever talk to Earl about that afterwards? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Th there's a lot more to it too. Sure. I mean, um, I talked to a, a, well, she was a girl, I mean, you know, young, um, mm -hmm. probably early 20s, at, uh, that day, Earl left for, <clears throat> for uh, to, left uh, to go down continued down um, I I stayed at Parache that day and got a shower and such as they are when you say a shower it's yeah. a bucket you know cold shed you know but felt great I had to put the same clothes on that I've been wearing but <coughs> but uh, there was an American girl there really beautiful blonde. And she and I talked that afternoon quite a bit and I was, you know, totally enamored of her. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, kind of, she had said she was headed back to um, Kathmandu after her trek, which was gonna end in a, couple of days and maybe we'd see each other back in Kathmandu and I was really hoping that would happen uh, even though I was married by this time so it was just a flirtation but um, I, I didn't see Earl until well we were gonna Earl and I were gonna meet up back in Kathmandu he was going to get out as fast as he could, which involved trekking to Lukla a day or two away and then flying from Lukla to Kathmandu. Mm -hmm. And then he, uh, I would collect the base camp and come a few, few days later. But when I got back to Kathmandu, I got a letter at, uh, from Earl at the hotel saying, 
Well, you know, I got back here and I met this this girl, and and it was the girl that uh, I had met, and obviously, I, I mean, I had just been married, and so I was, it was just going to be uh, nice to have somebody to talk to and stuff back, sure. but he met her, and uh, I forget her name, but um, he had, and she had gone off to Tiger Tops, which is a jungle resort mm -hmm. in uh, in the lowlands of, of Nepal mm -hmm. to have a little vacation together so which was just like Earl too he didn't waste time whatever he was doing <laughs> so I never actually saw him until we got back home to the States mm -hmm. and was he yelling help did you ever that yeah, he, he he yelled help, mm -hmm. and then he said he, but he couldn't yell it loud. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could barely talk. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it was a whisper. So he, yeah. That's what, I mean, you said that you know, it wasn't possible that you could, you could no, have heard it was, a mile and a half. You know, my explanation of that is, is it could be two two things. One. You know, it's kind of uh, um, maybe that there really is um, uh, an ability to um, communicate across great distances mm -hmm. if you're really connected with someone. And then the other thing could be just that I knew he was going to be in trouble, Yeah. you know. And that was my own mind telling me, no, get up, don't sleep anymore, Earl needs you. And I dreamed it, you know, so I don't know which it is. It really doesn't matter too much because sure. if, if it happened the one way, there's a connection. And, and if it happened the other way, there's a really good connection mm -hmm. too. So, you know, who... I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Earl didn't die. Unfortunately, Earl did die in the late 90s. Um, he committed suicide. He, um, uh, he was always uh, kind of troubled, I think. He, he was so... There's, there is something about climbing and intense climbing that isn't always healthy mm -hmm. you know not everybody is as psychologically sound as i am you know? <laughs> now when they are driven to the point that you know people will risk anything to do these climbs um, sometimes it can indicate uh a lack of something in their lives. Yeah. Um, um, I personally always felt that I wouldn't give up anything for a climb, the fingertip to frostbite, that would be a total, total defeat, you wow. know. So, of course, that's my own just 
justification uh, coming through. I, I didn't think I took the kind of risk or I, I certainly didn't tell myself it's worth risking everything for any given climb. I thought that was a stupid idea. And people who would say that, my attitude was that, uh, well, particularly if you kill yourself climbing, it negates everything else you've ever done. Um, so whether I was just fooling myself that I was, it wasn't just luck that kept me alive, but I think it was a combination of luck and my attitude that I, if I thought the risk was too high, I'd easily turn around and, and go down or I wouldn't start up, you know? And um, so there's, uh, but I could just be fooling myself. <laughs> So I think that's all I can do. Okay, it's October 6th, and I'm with Jeff Lowe. I'm Matt Driscoll, continuing Jeff's story um, about some of his climbs in the, um, in the Himalayas. Okay, this is continuing on the, uh, the kind of progression of climbs leading up to uh, trying the uh, best routes on the highest peaks in an alpine style with just one or two uh, partners. And after um, Earl and I had uh, tried um, Pumori in 83, that was a winter climb. The next, uh, next attempt on a route of that size was actually a trip with Tom Frost, um, Allison Hargraves, Mark Twyke, and myself in 1985, I believe or 86, um, we uh, had planned to warm up on a climb on uh, a mountain called Quan uh, Kangtega in, uh, once again, in the Kumbu region of Nepal. Um, How do you spell Kangtega? K-A-N-G-T-E-G-A, -E and it's a double-summited peak uh, that uh, sits above um, um, the uh, Tengboshe Monastery. It's a really gorgeous uh, uh, peak, a big fortress-like thing, and... Um, and we were going to use that as a warm-up for uh, Mark and I. We're going to go on to uh, 
attempt a, a route on the southeast pillar of Nupsi, which is uh, not too far away, and it's a neighbor of Everest and about 20, uh, 26,000 feet high. Kangtega is, uh, I think, 22,000 feet high, something like that. But as a warm-up, it was pretty ambitious warm-up. Sounds like it. The route we planned to attempt would uh, on Kangtega on the north, uh, probably the northwest uh, face of it was a big, big climbing in its own right. Anyway, when we got to uh, um, uh, into the uh, Kumbu the first thing we did was warm up for our warm-up climb and um, uh, <clears throat> we had some people going into base camp with us including um, um, what's his name I'm drawing a blank. He's um, he, he was a Nobel Nobel Prize winner in physics, physics, um, and he was also a climber uh, uh, who had climbed a lot in the '60s. <clears throat> and he and I did a warm-up climb on a, a mountain called Lobuje. L-O-B-U-J-E, which is about a 21,000 foot peak. And we did a new route uh, on a um, uh, ice-filled couloir there um, on the east face. And uh, Henry Candle is his name. Amazing guy. He hadn't climbed in 20 years, but on this warm up climb, we did it in a day from a, a high camp, and uh, Henry was as strong as, as um, most guys half his age. I think he was 65 at the time. And uh, did you know of him before as a... Yeah, yeah. He was an old friend of Tom Frost, and I knew of his climbing career. Mm -hmm. He had made the first American ascent of a famous climb in the Alps called the uh, uh, North Face of the Grand Jaras, and uh, that was in the early 60s and anyway I knew of Henry and he was quite a famous physicist as well as a climber but he was amazingly uh, strong and competent and on this climb we were halfway up it and uh, wasn't very difficult but it's um, real climbing 
and Henry uh, said to me at one point, we, do we really need the rope? I said, not if you don't need it, Henry. And so we unroped and just climbed to the top together. And um, then on the descent, he was just, uh, um, well, we ended up coming down a different side of the mountain, and we had a long way to walk back to our camp at the village of Lobache, and we walked into the night doing that, and it was hard for me to keep up with him. Mm-hmm. He was just an amazing guy, um, kind of a very... Uh, um, kind of a New England Yankee type, crusty old guy, really great guy. I enjoyed climbing with him. And then the next day or a couple of days later, Mark and Allison repeated that climb as a warm-up. And then we went over to our base camp uh, for um, Cantega which is a day and a half away across the valley. And we uh, started out, there were um, actually five of us. We had another guy from Utah, Bruce Rogar, an old climbing buddy of mine, who was on his first trip to uh, the Himalaya, and he started up with us, um, but after the first day, he decided he wasn't feeling well and went back to base camp, so he didn't uh, actually go on the cl- climb with us. But we spent, um, oh, five or six days climbing up to a high camp on, um, there's an ice cap on this mountain, kind of a big plateau that you, we climbed a very difficult uh, mixed rock and ice face up to this plateau, which is covered with a glacier. And out of that plateau, the two peaks stick up uh, and we climbed up to this high camp and uh, I think it took us probably six days and and then on the seventh day we got up to uh, go to the summit and these two peaks two two summits one's a little higher than the other and uh, and a little more difficult and we went to uh, toward we headed off toward the more distant and higher peak and when we got around to the base of the final uh, thousand foot ice face to that peak it became obvious that we hadn't brought enough gear for all of us to do the climb, and I wasn't feeling good. I was um, 
uh, had some kind of uh, chest cold and um, asthma or something. So I, uh, so, so Tom and I agreed we'd take one rope and go to the uh, slightly lower northwest peak and let the kids, uh, Mark and Allison, do the higher peak and take the the, the little bit of tech, technical gear we had with us with them. And so we split up and Mark and Allison headed off towards the higher peak and Tom and I climbed the lower peak. And when we got back to our high camp, which was an ice cave, um, I was really feeling uh, the uh, like I needed to get down to a lower elevation to get healthy. And so we left a note in the ice cave for Mark and Allison and we were all pretty much out of food at that point anyway, so we, we all needed to get down, but we told them we were headed down, and we headed down the route, uh, a route that the Japanese had done off the other side of the mountain, and they had left some old fixed ropes. Uh, uh, this was probably 10 years earlier. <clears throat> and so we scavenged, uh, scavenged some of their fixed ropes to so we could have uh, a long enough uh, rope uh, to repel with. And um, we started down and got down uh, halfway down that evening and bivouacked and completed the descent to uh, base camp from the other side of the mountain the next day. And uh, then late that afternoon, the next day, Mark and Allison joined us. They had been a little, uh, since they had climbed the the more difficult and longer peak they did they spent the previous night in the old uh, ice cave and then came all the way down the next day so so, so they did summit the uh, yeah that we we climbed both peaks um, of the mountain and so that was um That was, it was a 10 day overall uh, climb and descent. And it's not what most people would call a warm up. <laughs> it was a pretty, uh, pretty tough climb. But anyway, we uh, came down and then Mark and I headed over to um, camp at the, uh, with some Sherpas, uh, to base camp below the south face of Noopsie, and Allison, um, 
This was Allison's first trip to the Himalayas. She was probably 25 at the time, had been doing some good climbs in the Alps. And she had actually been very strong on, um, on Kangtega. Uh, she's an English girl, and um, she really wanted to go with Mark and I on uh, on the uh, Noopsy climb, but we didn't want to have three people, and um, so she went to base camp with us and hung around for a few days as we got ready, and then she found some uh, uh, Scottish friends that were in the area trying to climb the south face of uh, Lhotse, which is a nearby peak. And, and so she talked them into letting her join them. Um, and in the end, they didn't get far on her their peak, but Allison was very gung-ho. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, Allison ended up a few years later. <clears throat> a few years later, um, she had done some really good climbing in the Alps and <clears throat> had gone to um, Everest and soloed Everest and she was a really strong climber, but would you mind getting I don't <laughs> I'm closing up. that she had climbed Everest in the spring and then went on to the second highest mountain in the world, K2. And, um, and she climbed the mountain, but she uh, disappeared in, the, in a storm on the way down. And uh, um, I think her body was found years later, but she... She was probably blown off the mountain, uh, descending from K2 in 94. Um, but anyway, as far as Noopsy went, Mark and I gave this uh, South Pillar uh, a pretty good try, but we weren't uh, an especially strong team together. Mark um, hadn't uh, done much in the Himalayas. Uh, the, his total experience was the Kangtega climb, where he had done well. But together, we just weren't a really strong partnership, and we climbed through the lower half of the route, where the greatest technical difficulties are. But we ran out of steam at that point, and 
descended from about 20 to uh, 23,000 feet. But the route was very, uh, very technical, good rock and good ice and on a high peak and a nice looking uh, feature that we were climbing on. So it was one that became a, a major um, goal of people to climb uh, after that. And it had many attempts, including another one by Mark and myself the next winter, which didn't get us much higher than mm -hmm. we had gotten in the spring. But it was, uh, um, it became a, a major objective for um, uh, 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 ambitious parties. And it finally was climbed in uh, 2005, I think, by uh, a couple of Russians, but they had used fixed ropes uh, all the way through the first half of the uh, uh, the climb. Uh, and so it seemed um, they had adopted different tactics than we had uh, uh, established and there was controversy around them doing it in that style, whereas people who had tried the route before were trying to do it in a really clean, lightweight mm -hmm. style. So there's still some, uh, uh, some people feel that it hasn't been climbed right mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so um, that's, that climb, if, had we done it, would have been probably uh, acceptable to my mind as, well, this is, uh, uh, this climb would have been uh, of one of the climbs that would satisfy all my ideals mm -hmm. in mountaineering in the Himalayas and, um, and yeah, we didn't get up, so I was still looking yeah. for that climb. Yeah, so you gave two efforts on it though, mm -hmm. within a couple of years. Yeah, well, the same year actually, mm -hmm. and it was just the wrong partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, it, in on those kind of big climbs, even if you've got two pretty strong climbers, uh, experience working together, if the partnership isn't really in sync, uh, you're wasting energy and, and, you know, trying to make decisions and stuff. And if you're not on the same wavelength, um, everything has to be just right if, if you're on these climbs. Um, if you're going to succeed in this kind of style. And when things aren't perfect between the partners, often uh, it's unlikely you're, you're going to succeed because mm -hmm. uh, you're wasting energy and you're just, you know, 
it, everything has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. The weather has to be on your side. You've, your gear has to be right. You have to both be in good health. And then you have to be uh, in sync mm -hmm. as a team. And we we weren't. Mm -hmm. So in sync in terms of communication? or Well, just... The, you have to be climbing for the same reasons. Mark and I uh, had different experiences. He wrote about these climbs after the fact, and it was like he was on a different mountain mm -hmm. than I was. Mm -hmm. He was full of angst, and, and um, you know, he was trying to prove something to himself in the world. And he wasn't having a good time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't understand it at the time we were climbing, but after I read his writings, I'm going, well, no wonder yeah. he, he was, he, he was, um, he, he was undergoing a personal crisis uh, during these climbs. And partly it was un unfair to expect him to um, uh, to be able to bite off such a big chunk with the level of his experience at that time, but uh, you know he was uh, uh, he had a lot of alpine experience in the Alps and had done uh, plenty of climbing, so I thought he was fine. But in the end, uh, he wouldn't tell me about it, uh, and uh, I didn't really know he was as uneasy as it turns out that he was. But it was clear we weren't working that, that well together. So. Um, Okay, uh, we're at um, Noopsy, and we didn't get up that. A um, couple, couple of years went by, and um, um, a friend that um, I had climbed with in Russia in uh, 1974, uh, John Roskell, he called me up and asked me uh, if there was, if I had any interest in trying to do a, a climb on the east face of Toache, which is T-A-W-O-C-H-E in Nepal. Toache is less than 22,000 feet high, but the east face is um, a really, really steep uh, wall, about 4,000 feet high, um, and one of the more technical uh, climbs in the uh, Kumbu area, and it hadn't been done, and people had been walking under it on the way to Everest uh, for years, and no one 
had tried it. John had tried it a year or two before and failed on it with uh, Jim Bridwell. And now a Sak uh, Sakashita, a uh, Japanese climber. But it was good uh, technical looking road, a very attractive line, a big uh, gash of ice right up the middle of it. Um, and uh, so I agreed that that would be a good thing to do. So we went in the winter of 89, I think in January, and John and I spent uh, uh, eight days uh, climbing that east face and um, really good climbing, real technical and um, cold, good rock and ice. Um, one of the, probably the most technical uh, routes that's been done in the Himalayas and um, one of my best climbs for sure with John. Um, but it wasn't, um, because it wasn't, the altitude wasn't really that high, and the overall face was not 8,000 feet, it's 4,000. Mm -hmm. Although it's uh, a very technical 4,000 feet, but it wasn't quite on the level of uh, say the the face on Noopsy or or um, something like that. So it's just one step below the biggest routes uh, on the uh, the biggest and best um, climbs available in the Himalayas. So I, it still left something to be. Uh, desired from my original idea uh, that I've been working up to. And um, the, so the, uh, the next time I went to the Himalay, well, uh, Catherine Destabel, a French woman, I went to um, um, oh it's hard um, this is getting confusing now I'm gonna try and stick with this one thread mm -hmm. the I still had to do one of these really big routes and complete it uh, uh, Latok had been uh, an attempt on a climb like that. We didn't quite complete it. Then, um, um, oh, I didn't even talk about ski on Congre. Oh, there, I'm I'm missing a few things. But the the final route on this uh, progression was going to be. Um, the west face of Makalu, uh, which is the fifth highest mountain in the world, it's in Nepal also, not in the Khumbu area, 
that I, in 1993, in the spring, I went there um, with Catherine Destabel and Eric de Camp, uh, and I was going to try to do the uh, West Face by myself. Uh, it hadn't been climbed, still hasn't. Um, and uh, Catherine and Eric were going to try and repeat the West Pillar, which had been climbed a few few times. But um, in the end, I didn't really get to give a full effort on the West Face. When I got there, the Nepalis had... Uh, given out two permits for the West Face at the same same time. And the um, uh, there was an Italian expedition there with 13 climbers and about 25 Sherpas working on the West Face, fixing ropes and camps. And they were already there, so I had to wait for them to complete their attempt, and uh, by the time they completed their attempt, um, it was the end of May, and the monsoon was coming in, and once they left the mountain, I went up and tried, but it was all already, um, the monsoon storms were coming in each day, before noon, and uh, the west face is a big bowl uh, that collects every snowflake, and when it snows even a little bit, you get rivers of spindrift uh, flowing down the face, and you can't really climb up in the face of those. So I made an attempt and got to about 20, 23 and a half thousand feet, and uh, uh, gotten one of these afternoon storms and was forced to find a place to um, uh, bivouac for the night under a serac sticking out of the ice. And during the night I got buried in my little hanging tent, uh, buried about six feet uh, in with snow and um, ended up having uh, quite an epic digging my way out. <clears throat> and then I had to, I lost gear in that and just uh, found it, was able to scavenge enough gear from uh, the hole that I had crawled out to be able to descend the next day, and that was the end of my attempt. Mm -hmm. um, so I never did complete my my uh, vision of uh, the hardest and highest and best routes in the, available in in the Himalayas, and by by that token, the highest and best and hardest in the world. Um, 
they're they're still there, and most of them, uh, really, none of those routes have been completed yet by anyone. So it is still a uh, an ideal that remains for um, somebody to complete. Um, And to go back a little bit and just fill in, there was a, a climb in, in um, probably 81, I think, or 80 on ski on I No, I think I did talk about it last, last uh, week. Ski on Congre? Yes. Okay. Right next so to K2, did, right? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And then, um, and then just prior to, um, um, to going to the west face of Makalu, the year before, Catherine and I had gone back to uh, Latok to try and complete that climb on the North Ridge uh, that we had failed on in 1970. 78, but uh, for various reasons, we didn't get half as high as we had gotten in 1978. So these these climbs like uh, Latok and um, Noopsy and and uh, um, and West Face of Makalu are still um, waiting for somebody to complete them. And they've been tried by uh, many, many uh, uh, teams now, some of the best climbers in the world. And as I said, to, to do them, you're going to have to have every all the elements come together in a perfect symbiosis, you know. The team has to be just right. The uh, weather has to be right. Every All the elements just have to jive perfectly. Um, but it's, for me, that was what uh, was my greatest dream uh -huh. to do that. And I was able to complete some climbs that were just one notch below the mm -hmm. ultimate. Mm -hmm. But that's good. I now I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I can leave that to the next generation. Yeah, and I mean, definitely, um, like you said, there's kind of an ideal set right there that they have been able to follow, and that remains out there. That's, yeah. That's, and people are uh -huh. working on it, you uh -huh. know. But um doesn't matter who you are, everything has to work out just right uh -huh. or or you're not gonna do these routes. Uh -huh. So um I'm trying to think of I'm I'm not feeling like uh, I've told this story the way I'd like to, but maybe I'll 
maybe when these uh, transcripts are developed, maybe I can, I haven't done editing yet on mm -hmm. them, but there's, I've got to work on this a little bit. And the problem also is I'm trying to go through this so quickly, and each one of these trips is a, a major story in mm -hmm. its own right, and the client, the the people I was climbing with, each deserve a lot of, you know, um, I mean they're interesting people, and, and so it's it's kind of it feels like I'm doing a disservice to them and to not cover in more depth, but you know, I could talk forever about each each one of them. Yeah, we I mean we talked a, a bit about um, you know, what what was missing between you and Mark and, and your mm -hmm. climbs. Um and, and you you said quite a bit about um was the Nobel Prize Henry Henry. Henry. Yeah. Um what about it? Yeah, it's and then I talked about uh, Allison Hargraves, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, as far as uh, Catherine though, Catherine Desteville, Catherine and, and Allison were kind of at that time not so much from Catherine's side, but from Allison's side, they were Allison felt. Um, she was in direct competition with Catherine for being the current world's greatest female mountaineer, mm -hmm. alpinist. And um, Allison shouldn't have been feeling that competitive because um, she wasn't really at the level of Catherine. Catherine was, Allison was really strong and good, but Catherine was uh, just a much better climber. And uh, how, how old was Catherine around this time? She was probably about thirty, and uh, was you know world famous. And Allison was trying to be make a career out of it, and. and it was like, it would be kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, um, you know, a tennis player who's playing at, um, I don't know, what, what female tennis player is really the absolute best Head and shoulders above the rest. Who who would that be? Yeah, right now I'm not sure, but yeah. you, know, you can think of like um, Steffi Graf when she was so dominant for yeah. all those years, and uh, who are some of the younger ones? Like that was when Monica Sellis was coming up, and they never could quite reach yeah. the caliber. Okay, mm -hmm. so it'd be something like that, and so um, uh, there was a there was a rival rivalry which was more from Allison's side. Um, you know, she wanted to have the fame and whatever that Catherine had. And Allison was a great climber and uh, 
you know, had my respect complete, completely. Uh, but uh, Catherine was is probably still the best woman overall climber that's ever lived, you know. So she was kind of trying to trying to compete with somebody that's pretty hard to compete with. Mm -hmm. And um, Catherine and I had started climbing together in the early 90s. And um, we went to um, one of my side goals in the Himalayas was to do a big pure rock climb, uh, free climb. Um, and um, where the Himalayas, in addition to the uh, best mixed rock and ice walls in the world. They have the best and biggest pure granite walls and so on. And so I had always wanted to do a big free climb in the Himalayas. Uh, um, and uh, Catherine and I went to nameless tower in Pakistan in 1990 and uh, made the second completely free ascent of uh, of the Slovenian route with a um, uh, a, a new direct start to it and that was a um, uh, the the completion of a personal goal. Also, was to do one of these uh, uh, huge granite towers, uh, completely free, and um, and that was Catherine's and my first uh, Himalayan trip together. Mm -hmm. We made a film for ABC TV on it too. There were some other films in some of these uh, trips that we did. Um, but What was the name of that film? Do you remember? I think it's called Nameless Tower. Mm -hmm. And um, we made a really good, strong team, Catherine and me. But on uh, uh, Latok, um, we didn't do to so well because of a combination of things. One, the weather wasn't real good. Two, I had uh, uh, torn uh, uh, meniscus in my right knee early on in the trip. And so my knee was constantly seizing on me and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, it was hard to climb. And two um, or three, Catherine was not yet 
that comfortable on the ice part of the climbing. She's a great rock climber, but um, hadn't had too much experience yet on ice. She was to get that over the next few years in Canada and the Alps and so on. Yeah, but at that point, when we were in um, Lata together, she hadn't, had, didn't have that much experience. So we weren't as strong as we needed to be for that climb either. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm-hmm.